Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator. And links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. This is about preserving a mindset of real ethics in a virtual world. In my work, helping organizations through the Business Creators Institute build and optimize their virtual teams, one of the biggest challenges that seems to emerge across the board is how do I know I can trust these people and or overcoming trust issues because somebody got screwed over by their virtual team. Sadly, it happens. Now I can balance that with examples of people who have been on virtual teams and people who have had virtual teams working in their organization where the relationship has been fantastic for 13, 16, 20 years at this point. That's how long this has been going on. With the rise in remote work that is not going to significantly end anytime soon, I don't believe, this becomes more important than ever. I have so many points on this topic, and this is going to be such a fun conversation we're going to have. And joining me for that conversation, I have somebody named Jonasson Goldson. And let me tell you a little bit about him. Jonasson is a director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC, teaching business leaders how good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity. He's a keynote speaker, TEDx presenter, and community rabbi, as well as a repentant hitchhiker, recovered circumnavigator, former newspaper columnist, and retail, excuse me, retired high school teacher in St. Louis. He's the author of hundreds of articles applying ancient rabbinic wisdom to the challenges of the modern world and five books, including Proverbial Beauty, Secrets to Success and Happiness from the Wisdom of the Ages. Wow. Jonas and Goldson, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> the virtual weather or the real weather, Adam? Virtually any kind. <laughs> All right, here's what we like to do. Here's what we like to do here at Business Creators Radio. We have a lot to cover here. I mean, your topic really has me excited. And I actually have a few things I'm hoping we can run by you in addition to what you want to cover and any audience questions. Um, uh, we uh, Let me start by saying that looking at your official bio, that was a lot of fun reading. It seems like you have quite a story. And what we'd like to do before we dive in, as our listeners who tune in every week know, is we like to get to know our guests a little bit more in depth. Our listeners are leaning in. They have a separate browser tab open. They're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, discovering more about Yonason, which is spelled Y-O-N-A-S-O-N, surname Goldson, G-O-L-D-S-O-N. You're welcome, folks. So tell us, you know, so tell us, Jonasson, a little bit more about your journey. I know you touched on it in your bio. And what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion, making a difference for your community, market, and audience. I think more and more, Adam, this, this leads into the, the topic of, of virtual versus reality. 
because I'm in, I'm meeting your audience for the first time. And I'm telling them the story that I have told over and over again, as I'm on more of these, these podcast interviews to the point where I'm getting really tired of my own story, <laughs> but I can't hold that against your audience. Um, I, they need to know who I am. And so I have to try to find ways of preserving my own enthusiasm in the same way that speakers will give the same speech again and again and again. It's polished, it's crafted, but we have to find the, the freshness in the message in order to keep it new. So with that little introduction, um, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. I had to decide what to do with a degree in English. And so I did the only thing that seemed to make any kind of reasonable sense. I set off hitchhiking across the United States. Right. I did that for uh, about half a year. Uh, thought I had cured myself of the travel bug, but it came back, bit me again. I crossed the Atlantic, backpacked across Europe for half a year, and I ended up in Israel. And that's where through an unlikely series of events, I ended up reconnecting with my Jewish roots. I'd been raised with really no knowledge whatsoever what it meant to be Jewish. Ended up living in Israel for nine years, met my wife, had our first two children, studied there, received my rabbinic ordination, and then embarked on a career teaching high school to Jewish students in private Jewish schools. I taught for one year in Budapest, Hungary, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, and 20 years in St. Louis, where I live now. And I really loved it. Uh, I loved it because the, the insights into life and the values for living that I had learned uh, as, as a young adult, I was now able to import, impart to, to teenagers to, uh, to help give them direction in their lives. Uh, about four years ago, my school closed, a victim of uh, community politics, if you can imagine such a thing. Oh, really? And so I had to decide. Oh, Are yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you remember the old expression, all politics is local? Uh-huh. Uh, well, it, I don't know if it's true anymore, um, but it, it's still, there are still plenty of local politics. But, you know, we, 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 we committed the unpardonable sin of being too far to the middle. We, weren't, we yeah. weren't right wing enough for the right wing, and we weren't left wing enough for the left wing. And so we got abandoned by a moderate to somebody with no friends. Uh, so I had to decide what I wanted to do when I grow up. And I decided, well, maybe if I take this message that I've been teaching in the context of Jewish school and I repackage it, uh, rearticulate the message for a general audience and a business audience, that uh, there should be value there to help people in their businesses, help people in their personal and professional lives, uh, live better lives, have more success according to every metric. And when I try to distill the lessons of, of Jewish tradition down into a soundbite, I came up with the word ethics. Uh, because ultimately, the choices that most of us make on a daily basis are not choices between right and wrong. They're choices between right and right or wrong and wrong. They're shades of gray. And right. that's really complicated. And there's no app for that. So I can't have a little handbook I carry around with me. I have to cultivate a mindset. What, is, what are ethics? What does it mean to be ethical? And what are the... Um, what are the, what's the methodology for being an ethical person? And the, the, the lesson that I think we really need to, to ingrain into ourselves is that we don't have to choose between being good and being successful. That ultimately being ethical is, it does set us on the path that leads to success. I think you're absolutely right about all of those points. And I have been 
in situations where people have behaved unethically in business situations. I've had it happen with clients of mine where people behaved unethically toward them. And the first thing I want to say is sometimes we discover it again proves what I share in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. There's no such thing as the truth. There are facts that we can scientifically, empirically, and logically prove exist, and we can all agree on those facts. Truth emerges when we look at it through the lens of our own unique experience, education, and background. So one person's unethical might be another person's A-OK. -okay. We don't know that. So that kind of leads to the first question I have, which I know is sort of a pre to what you want to share with us, but that's fine, is how do we even define the word ethical? Yeah, that is, that is itself a challenge. And uh, in fact, there is a, uh, a sociologist, what was his name, Raymond Baumhart, and he asked business people, um, how would you define the word ethics? And he got a whole slew of different answers. Right? Ethics is my religious belief. Ethics is what society says is okay. Ethics is following the law. Ethics is, is, is being in touch with my feelings. Uh, and then my favorite answer is, I don't know what that word means. So this is a problem. Uh, the, the definition that I like to start with, and it's really much more complicated with that. In fact, I have a, a book coming out in a couple of months called Grappling with the Gray. Um, Right, the gray areas and the gray matter, because ethics is a struggle. And the starting point is ethics is a, is a discipline of recognizing and committing ourselves to what we ought to do. And of course, I say it's only a starting point, because how do we know what we ought to do? Sometimes we have to weigh individual priorities versus collective priorities. How much do we sacrifice for the quote unquote greater good? How much, when's it appropriate to take one for the team? And when is the team expecting too much from me? Yeah. Uh, these, are, these are all of the difficulties that we face. And, and it's the mindset, it's the effort we put into learning how to think in an ethical way. That's what calibrates our moral compass because we're never gonna get it right all the time. And sometimes there may not be a right or a wrong per se. You know, when you talk about truth, as you just were, you know, truth has so many layers to it because context, time, I mean, there's a whole movement now to um, tear down the great heroes of America, including Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, because they own slaves. Well, we know slavery is wrong. There's no doubt about that. But isn't it different looking at it through the lens of 250 years ago? Right. Through the lens of today? Uh, a we different truth. Them. A different truth. Uh, slavery is a fact. Uh, it's a fact that it happened. And there was a different type of truth that existed back then that for well, many people would say, yeah, this is fine. Right, and so but if, the we, but if we look, but if we look at through the lens of 2020, oh hell no! See, that's exactly. the difference. See, you know, facts are facts. There's no such thing as the truth. Everybody has their own. So we're looking at Thomas Jefferson 1820 truth versus here we are in 2020 truth. Two different things, literally two centuries apart. Right, and the problem is that once you say that truth is is malleable and variable and subjective 
then it's a very easy step to say there is no truth. Yeah. Everything's okay, right? Doesn't mean it, no, it doesn't mean everything's okay. <laughs> it's not a license to lie. It's a distinction between facts and how we view the facts. Uh, the example right. I like to give are polygraph machines. When somebody takes a polygraph, the polygraph is measuring things like their uh, like their pulse rate, um, any movements, any brain activity, anything along those lines, and it's looking for signs of prevarication. And prevarication means that the person is willfully distorting something for, you know, basically lying is basically what it comes down to. So it becomes that person in their own mind through their own truth views something as, yeah, I'm fabricating something here. I'm making this up because I'm trying not to get in trouble or I don't want people to find out or whatever it is. They're, they're, asked, they're asked a direct question and they give an answer that is actually out of alignment with their own truth. What a polygraph does not do is research facts and say, oh, well, your version of it doesn't match the facts. It doesn't do that, which is why you can have three people view an event, the same event, the same time. All three of them can take polygraph tests, give completely different descriptions, and all of them pass with flying colors. And we know that uh, eyewitness testimony is extremely unreliable. Yeah. We rely on it because we often don't have a choice and it's the best we can do. And that's part of the truth also. Part of the truth is recognizing the limits of what we can know and how well we can know it. And in a sense, we're, we're, we're dealing in probabilities. What are, what are the likelihoods? What are the odds? What are, what are, what, what's, how do the scales balance one against the other? Because ultimately, truth is unknowable. That's reserved for, for the higher worlds. But it doesn't exempt us from trying. Correct. And that's why they use phrases like the search for truth. Now, bring that, now bring, now bring that into business practices. And I'm going to give an extremely, extremely basic example, which probably for many people doesn't even fall under the heather of whether something is ethical or not. But at the same time, it may be an ethical question for people. Again, facts versus truth. So let's say you go to an event. Uh, you know, next time they open live events, you go uh, you meet a bunch of people, you go to the cocktail hour, you get 45 business cards. Yonason, uh, what do you do with those 45 business cards? Uh, what, do I, what do I do with them? Yeah, what do you do with them? Um, well, when I collect them, I have this wonderful plan of how yeah. I'm going to uh, you know, get, stay in touch with those people. I'm going to send out follow-up notes. And I'm going to put them in my network. I'm going to stay in touch. And what often yeah. happens is they end up with a stack on the desk that uh, after a while may move to a drawer or may move to the circular file. Okay, do you, do you enter them in like some kind of marketing system so that they can receive your follow-up sequence? Uh, if, I were, if I were younger and had been in business longer, I, I probably would do that. Uh, that is the... 
No, 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 no. They didn't give consent. That's illegal. That's immoral. That's unethical. So oh, yeah. okay, okay. So, so 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 this is so this is the Adam loses his his mind moment that our listeners tune into. Sometimes I drop f bombs. I'm feeling good today. But anyway, here is an example, and I, I'm so grateful to you for playing along and recognizing the humor in what I just did dr to dramatically surface the issue. Let's look at the ethics of adding people to an email marketing system. Um, on the one hand you can look at various laws that say, well, you know, it's okay to do so, but you have to make sure that your email contains all these various elements and you have to have points A, B, and C present in your unsubscribe mechanism. And you have to do things with data collection, data archival, and data deletion. There are those that say that. And then there are others that say, they did not consent, you cannot do it, doesn't matter what the law says. Huh. So one person's ethics says, as long as it's legal and as long as you're not forcing it on them or at any time they could just click a button and walk away from it, no questions asked, it's okay. Then there's another set of ethics that says, you damn well have it in writing or have them fill out a form themselves. Wow. Already. There, I, I know people on both sides of that argument that are among the, what I would perceive to be among the most ethical, uh, legal-minded, and positive people in service that you would ever imagine, but they view that one question differently. So what's ethical? Whoa. Well, so, yeah, so, so that's what I, what I uh, we'll come back to what I mentioned earlier, is that um, there, there is no handbook of ethics. Uh, it, it's, um, it's a terrible misconception to say that anything that's not illegal is ethical. I mean, that's a distortion. Right? On the other hand, I've got this gray area. Uh, all of these things, and there's room for different interpretations, different priorities, different values. Um, part of what's necessary is a sense of consistency. Do I apply the same principles of interpersonal behavior to others that I would like applied to myself. And, you know, we, we talk about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But uh, we like to tweak that a little bit in Jewish tradition. Uh, do unto others as they would have us do unto them. In other words, it requires me to put myself in the other person's position. Don't base it on me. You know, if, if I... If I wouldn't mind if, you, if your teenage son played his drums at three in the morning, then you shouldn't mind if mine does, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, wait, maybe, maybe other people don't have the same uh, insensitivity to noise. Maybe they don't have the same quality earplugs I have. The idea is to put myself in the other person's position and try to see it from his point of view. So if I don't mind that my mailbox fills up with spam, that doesn't necessarily mean that other people don't find it profoundly annoying. So right. there's room to grapple with this question that on the one hand, if I believe in the quality of my product and I believe I'm, I'm, I'm uh, providing a service and everybody knows when they hand you a business card that you're probably, probably going to end up, they're probably going to end up on your list. You can make the case as I'm giving them a way out. You can make that case. 
uh, a lot of it comes from the little decisions that we make along the way that we, we work our, our ethical muscles. I think of it like a person who goes to the gym for the first day. Right? He's 400 pounds overweight, and you know, he can't make it up the stairs, and he really wants to get in shape. So what does he do? He starts working out with five-pound weights, and he's exhausted after two minutes. So you could say, well, what's the point? The point is that the next day he'll work for three minutes, and the next day he'll work for four minutes. And after a few weeks, he might move up to 10-pound weights and then 15-pound weights. And given enough time, if he develops the discipline, then that will actually have a positive impact on his physical health. Well, if we apply that same principle to making ethical choices, do I, am I on time for the jobs I do? Am I respectful of other people's time? Am I, do, I, do I wash out my coffee mug and put it on the rack when I'm, when I'm in the lunchroom, the, the, the break room? Right? All these little things that independently don't really add up to a lot, but it's, a, it's the development of an ethical and a moral discipline that turns me into the person who looks at these kinds of questions, and after a while, I might find that I start wanting to err on the side of caution. Yes, I can make yeah. the case that this is not unethical, but am I completely confident that it is ethical? And do I want to put myself in that sort of fuzzy no man's land? I know. A lot to think about. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. And that's why a lot of people don't want to indulge it, because it's a lot easier to be black and white. You know, this is why I like to say compliance is the enemy of ethics. That's where I wanted to go next. I love that saying of yours. I want to know what you meant by that. Well, when you try to legislate ethics, you're defeating the whole point of ethics. Ethics exists. The whole concept of ethics exists for us to do the hard work of trying to figure these questions out. And so when you rele relegate this to a, to a legalistic code, now I can simply... Uh, absolve myself of the responsibility to make hard decisions. I'm in compliance. I'm ethical. Well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe the code of ethics isn't, isn't properly written. Maybe what happens with all of our legislation is the more laws and rules we create, the more loopholes we create, the more contradictory laws we create, and now we have a mess. So you need some sort of compliance guidelines but that can never take the place of an ethical mindset. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking of um, back when I used to work in a production type environment, like a fast food environment. Now, compliance meant doing exactly what the manual said to do. Now, <laughs> you actually try and follow that manual in the real <laughs> world of running a restaurant. It's, it's beyond laughable. So uh, when you had these you know, these corporate types or the or the idiot district manager, oh god, that guy was a pip. But anyway, um, <laughs> he, uh, just trust me on that. And uh, they would they would start with this this radical compliance stuff. I would, you know, what I would do? I would go to extreme compliance, simply so that I could illustrate how stupid it was. Um, I uh, I had this uh, one assistant manager who was just a. a total nutcase so i looked up in the manual and i found out that uh to properly put dress 
properly put condiments on a junior hamburger, uh, it called for, and this was the language in the manual, one heaping tablespoon of ketchup. Do you know how much, do you know what a heaping tablespoon of ketchup does to a junior hamburger? <laughs> I started making the hamburgers that way. It's like, oh, can't touch me. I followed the rules. Just to make a point. Yeah. That, yeah that, that, and and there's, actually, there's actually a thing. Uh, you see a lot of these threads on Reddit and sites like that. The term is malicious compliance. The idea is, is you illustrate how bad something is by following it to the letter. It also reminds me of what President Ulysses S. Grant said. To paraphrase him, he said that he knew no way to, to cause a bad law to be eliminated faster than by strictly enforcing it. Now, Harry Truman looked at that and thought that was the stupidest thing uh, he ever heard. But then again, uh, Truman had it out for Grant. And uh, you know, if you read uh, plain speaking, you find out that if Truman didn't like somebody, he couldn't find one thing they did right ever. So uh, that would be an example of uh, facts versus truth. Now, that being said, was President Grant completely incorrect about that? If you have a law or a rule that is actually detrimental, does making people feel the effects of it get them to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is crap, and get on their, and get on their elected representatives to change that damn law ASAP? Uh, that's a really interesting question. And, um, and it's a question. Uh, I don't know that there's one correct answer for that, which then go, that goes back to the ethics of laws. Yeah, and that's, that's an area that, um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a whole other area of discussion. Um, my, the line I like to use is that ethics governs the gray area between what's legal and illegal. But the, the other side of it is what about an, an unethical law? And there are right. plenty of them. Are you, so are you kidding the, me? That's when you get into civil disobedience. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I mean, where, how, how much of a part of, of American uh, mindset and culture is, is Rosa Parks? Because she simply wouldn't give up her bus seat. Yeah, you have Martin Luther King Jr., a big believer in civil disobedience, uh, an opponent of violence and rioting, felt it would do no good. And look what he accomplished. I would say a lot. Yeah, and if that were, if that were, you know, if there was someone of his stature today, right now, you know, imagine how different the headlines would look. Maybe. I, that's, that's, a, that's a whole separate interview, and I'm happy to have you back <laughs> if we want to do that one. But I want to stay on ethics here because we're about halfway through our time, and I do want to get into some of the, um, the variables and how this uh, comes up with uh, – you know, virtual teams. So let me start with something very specific and then we can spread out. I've seen studies that show that people who work in office environments, you know, they have their cubicle, they go there from eight to five with their mandated hour lunch and two 15 minute breaks. They, on average, they will, out of that eight hours that they're actually in work mode, two hours and 54 minutes of that will be actual work. What is the rest of it? Well, meetings and, you know, email politics and other stupid bullshit. So now you see studies emerging, especially since we have more to measure when people work at home or they do remote work. 
and they can get more done working, and I use this air quotes, part-time because they're in an environment that is optimized for themselves, not somebody else, and they're able to focus without interruptions, they can actually get through more and be more productive doing so, working essentially part-time. So do you see the possibility of a couple ethical questions arising there? Uh, there's a lot we could talk about there. Yeah, just that one little thing. And we yeah. are working, we're, concern, we're concerned about they might rip me off and I'm, they're not right here in the office, so I can't see it. Yeah, and, and what you're really saying is that people who are not, who cannot be trusted, and that's, let me go back and modify that in a moment, uh, people who cannot be trusted or who are not provided the support, let's put it that way, to do their jobs efficiently in the workplace, why should we now suspect them if they're taken out of the workplace? Is the, the whole idea, I mean, you've got this, uh, the same idea with, with uh, testing. You've got a, um, some sort of a, an app for students that are taking standardized tests or, or exams at home for colleges, or even high school, I think, where you've got this camera watching you and it's and it's it's seeing whether it's listening for whether uh, the mic's listening for who comes into the room and are you talking to somebody else and are you do your eyes look away from the screen for more than three seconds and and the the kids who are taking these tests they feel you know dehumanized yeah right on the other hand from the point of view of the evaluator how do we set up a system where people aren't going to cheat if we can't proctor, uh, there has to be some kind of a culture of trust. And, and that has to start a long time before the test. So if I create an environment in my business as an owner or a manager, where it doesn't promote efficiency, it doesn't inspire the employees, it doesn't um, promote productivity, and then I send them home and I say, well, I don't trust them to work at home. Well, I've already created a kind of adversarial situation. And the irony is that when the people get home, they may actually do better, as you said, because they're out of the, the, the toxicity of the, the environment that was actually responsible for the lack of productivity. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, you think, yeah think about it in workplaces um, how many times people – have to get pulled into meetings or have to process for five hours because somebody thought that they didn't like the way they phrased something in an email. Goodness oh, gracious. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, and, then, and then there's something that I uh, had to deal with myself is I had a role at the last company I worked with that involved creating an interface between my department and another department to optimize uh, a process between those two departments. It involved communication of very sensitive information. So uh, my style was to go over and sit in that other department and work with them to get it optimized as quickly as possible. So that, of course, translates to you're never at your desk and you're always wandering around. 
spoken by my boss's boss, who, as I've shared on other episodes, is somebody who's always clueless to begin with. But, uh, but the point being is even less clueless people would recognize that um, it's those optics. And they say, well, he just wanders around all the time. He's never at his desk. He never answers his phone. He doesn't check his email within five minutes. Yeah, I was over there doing my job. I'm so sorry that the optics that somebody else told me were supposed to be appropriate don't match the situation, and I'm actually doing a better job at it. Excuse the hell out of me for living. <laughs> now, I'm going to take a time out because I've gotten some feedback on this. Uh, people listen to episodes of the Business Creators Radio Show, and they say, boy, that guy just goes off sometimes on things that happened a while ago. Here's the reason why. I discovered a long time ago, because I had a really bad incident in my early days as an entrepreneur. If you read my book, Groundhog Days, and Invent Not a Business Strategy, read the section about how I smashed my printer into a thousand pieces and the reason why. When you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, you're a business creator, you have one thing going for you that makes your worst day better, or actually, yeah, your worst day better than the best day of somebody who works with somebody else and takes orders for a paycheck is very simply that no matter how bad your situation sucks, you can always improve it. When you are beholden to somebody else, you cannot do that. So I believe ethically, if you employ people as virtual team members, as virtual or remote employees, as in the office employees, it's very ethically important to create a culture where 360 feedback, as they like to say, so for lack of a better term, 360 feedback, use of things like platinum roll and other type concepts, and the ability for people to own and manifest their value to the organization without being stuck with a bunch of malicious compliance issues is a major ethical issue that I see so many companies missing today. And I beseech small business owners and entrepreneurs to be careful to not accidentally create that culture in their own organization. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, culture is everything. And, and just to, just to offer a little bit of pushback, um, there is, you can't completely discount the impact of optics. Right. If you have somebody who really isn't pulling his weight and who really is just walking around schmoozing and not doing his job, and people see that, then that, that sours the entire work environment. Oh, it, do, it, do, it does. Right? As does us, at, yeah, as does assuming somebody's doing that right, without asking right. what the hell they're up to. So, right, exactly. so when this, That's so when the this, communication comes in. So, exactly. Yeah, so when this boss's bosses of mine says, well, you're unfocused because all you do is walk around and you're, and you're never at your desk. Now, had this person shown that they were capable of a clue just once and said you know it seems like you're seems like you're away from your desk a lot what's uh you know you know what 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 are you doing and i would have said yeah well we're working on this process that you actually um designate me to develop and lead so i'm over there in person leading it yeah and this is you know my and and i think a person with ethics would say oh okay well that's that's cool. Uh, so your style is to get hands on and we could have a conversation from there, but to lead with the assumption, that's what has my, that's what has my oatmeal smoking to this day. Yeah. And, and for good reason. When yeah. in my Ted talk, I caught a talk about ethical communication. 
Yeah. And, and that's part of it. It's, it's find out the other person's position before you respond, <laughs> before you assume, right? Presume positive intent until you have reason to actually suspect that somebody is being unethical. Just giving a person an opportunity to explain himself or herself can change the entire dynamic and, and also can open up new ways of looking at situations. We can see options that are available that we didn't realize were there before. Yeah, I, again, it goes back to, as I say dramatically, there's no such thing as a the truth. There are facts and then there's how we view it. So that would be an example of people looking at the same or similar set of facts and coming up with different truths over it. So we've started very micro with the ethical questions of, well, can we trust somebody to work remotely? And then you raise the point that have we already created a situation of distrust and now we're going to just assume that they're going to be untrustworthy so we don't do it after we created the situation ourselves? That's what I heard. If I, you know, let me know if I'm getting that right. No, exactly. So, so what does it yeah. take for a, for a leader to create a culture of trust. Yeah. Well, the first thing he has to do is he has to be trustworthy. And second, he has to be willing to trust others. You know, we, we've all probably had experience with micromanagers. Oh, uh, we only have an hour. <laughs> Go ahead. So is, isn't micromanaging, by definition, demonstrating a lack of trust? Yeah. I don't trust you to do your job. So how am I as an employee going to respond to that? So, well, okay. it, well, yeah, I can, <laughs> I can, I can, I can give you, I can give you an example. Um, after a short while, you become resigned and just say whatever. So <laughs> today they have this idea, even though it, even though it so badly contradicts what they were harping on yesterday, it basically look makes them look like a hypocrite. Whatever, I'm just going to do what I need to do to get my paycheck. In the meantime, I am interviewing with the competition. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, and so, and at that point, <laughs> and at that point, not only has the employer lost the employee, but now that employee is actually detracting from their bottom line while they're there. Right. Because exactly. because phoning it in is a lot different than showing up and doing a full day's work. Because if it gets to the point where you're micromanaged, it seems like every single thing you do is wrong, no matter what. Even if it contradicts the thing that you did wrong yesterday that's now suddenly right today, you will get to the point of, whatever, they don't freaking pay me enough. Just, yeah, so there's no yeah, loyalty. It's like, it's like, it's like, no it's like, it's like, it's like, I'm just here to pay the bills. Yeah. Whatever. And then and, and once somebody becomes that emotionally detached, uh, I think that you've treated them highly unethically because you have disconnected them from their own brilliance and passion uh, for what they would do to make a difference for your organization. So to me, the, to, me, to, me that's, that, to me, that's abuse. This is why, well, yeah. And then it's also not smart as a business practice because, yeah. right, that's why I say that, that just to think that we have to choose between being ethical and being successful, right, it's a terrible mistake because when you treat your people ethically, they are going to be there for you. They're going to be. They're going to be productive. They're going to be engaged. I mean, part yeah. of it is that you share your vision and your mission for your for your business. Something beyond just making money. I mean, Simon Sinek talks about this uh, on and on and on. That when you really believe in something and you're 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 there to serve your customers, not merely take their money. 
and, and, and you're providing something that really is adding value to people's lives, people want to be part of that. Yeah. And if they're well-treated and they're appreciated and they're empowered to actually do what they can do and use their talents and their abilities to make a positive contribution, I mean, you're going to have a culture that is thriving. You're going to make money. Everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to love their work. Nobody's going to want to leave. You're going to have all kinds of applicants trying to get in if there's, if there's an opening. Uh, I mean, isn't that what any business owner wants? Yeah, I want people fighting to get in my company. Uh, I don't want to be fighting to um, – now, that same company I was micromanaged at uh, was paranoid that their employees may be interviewing with other people. I, uh, I can give you an example. Um, one time I, uh, I got serious about physical fitness. I went to the gym. Uh, I worked with a trainer who uh, pushed me too hard, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying I pushed myself too hard. Believe me, this guy – pushed me too hard. I know the difference between taking responsibility and blame. He did it. And I ended up in the emergency room the, <laughs> that night, that, that night, because I couldn't lift my arm. Now, if you can't move your arm, you're going to have that checked out. It turned out I just had really severe muscle strain and it was recommended that I not use the arm for 48 hours while I took the medication. Now, seeing as I couldn't even move the arm because the muscle was strained so bad, uh, and if I, you know, when I did begin to regain use of it, if I moved it like three inches, inch, it would hurt like that. No, I wasn't going to go to work the next day. So the next day, I'm sitting at home, and uh, I'm actually reclining because they also recommended uh, if you can go one day without moving, you will heal this thing so much faster. And believe me, I did not want to have an arm that didn't work. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they uh, this micromanaging supervisor called me eight times. Uh, I, I know at least three of the calls were about things that she could see for herself on the common paperwork that she didn't even need me for. Another was to complain that she didn't like my voicemail greeting, even though it's the same one I'd be using for a year. And another one was to tell me that I had to change my voicemail password because of some company policy that I'd never heard of. Do you know what she was actually doing? <laughs> Making sure I was at home and not interviewing. And I discovered when I got back there that there were a lot of stories of people that needed to take the day off, and they just got call after call after call after call after call literally every hour over stupid stuff just to make sure they'd answer their phone and they were at home. If I could, Adam, you know, we, we how, all... How, I, I, how, I, how, I, how about them ethics, my friend? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I want to say. You know, we, I think we've all got stories like that. I certainly do. Yeah. But you know, rather than focusing on the boss from hell, <laughs> because yeah. there's plenty of them out there. We, you know, we are at that let, point. Let me, Let's move on. I wanted well, yeah. to bring into sharp one. relief the boss from hell. Now let's look at the boss from heaven. Yeah, or even, or even it may be more relevant in between because, you know, benign neglect is is almost as bad. Uh, I worked for a principal here in St. Louis for 20 years who was uh -huh. just a prince of a principal. And he was at one, he was not the Nine Brinkley Lake. He was, he was a real boss from heaven. And, and at one open house, he was describing some of the teachers, talking about them to the parents. And when he finished, one of the new teachers came up to him, talking about this in my keynote. She said, Rabbi, 
thank you. She had tears in her eyes. She said, my last job, I worked for eight years and never got one word of recognition. Now, even if she wasn't being micromanaged, even if she wasn't not being trusted, even if she was being given the basic support she needed to do her job, we all want to be acknowledged for what we do. We want to have some sense of appreciation that our, 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 our efforts are making a difference. And, and how little effort does it take for a boss to recognize, wow, that was really good. Thank you. You did a great job there. We yeah, really benign neglect. That. Yeah. yeah. I, I hadn't, I've been thinking about benign neglect. I was thinking of bosses from hell. And, which, and benign neglect, as I understand the term, and you can tell me if your definition is different, we'll go with yours, is you're not a bad boss. You're just kind of there. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, people don't want to stay in that situation either. That's not, that's not a good situation to get promoted in because neglect is still neglect. That means you're not really getting feedback. You're not really getting opportunities to show what you, what you can bring to the organization. Uh, you have a boss that basically comes in, fulfills their duties, and uh, just stays completely out of your way. Well, there comes a time when having autonomy, having the ability to engage in 360 feedback and show your brilliance and passion is great, but there's also a time when, you know, hitting up against a little bit of resistance is good too because it shows how you can really contribute in less than optimal times, which, right. is, which is how leaders are made. And how to become better. Yeah. You know the, uh, the 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 pitchers of the at the in the in the, uh, in the major leagues when they're playing, um, they'll, they'll talk about the the pitching coaches and and uh, I remember hearing one one player say that uh, you know, the pitching coach is right behind you, and as long as he's not saying anything, you know you're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. I have a I have a I have a good friend uh, who's a high school football coach, and he posted a picture of on his Facebook of a high school football coach chewing out the quarterback of the high school football team. And I I'm I, I'm going by memory here because I haven't actually seen this post in a few years. It's kind of old, but basically it said, if your coach isn't doing this for your son, get him a different coach. <laughs> I mean, point, I, mean, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know if that approach works in a lot of situations, but I get the larger point is if you as a leader, as a guide, a mentor, a sensei, a coach are not providing feedback, then the benign neglect that results from just saying, okay, well, you're doing a good job. I'll give you the 5%, you know, sign here and that's your evaluation. And then you don't hear from them for a year, except for the occasional thanks and good job. What's that doing for you? How are you developing? You're not. And then when there's a crisis and there's a disaster and you get blamed because you never got the support along the way to help you grow in your job and, and become more and more competent in what you're doing. Yeah. And, and I think where this ties in, at least you tell me if you have a different thought and we'll defer to yours when it comes to the virtual world, which is we're discussing ethics when it comes to remote work and virtual teams and such is that when you have somebody working remotely, it becomes very important to keep them positively engaged because you know, the same for by the same token that they can work four hours a day and, and, uh, from their home office and get more done than the two hours and 54 minutes in cubicle land dealing with meetings and pointless conversations. During that four hours that they're producing more at home, they can 
feel kind of neglected and disconnected. So they need to still feel that you're there. Just like you need to make sure that they feel you there so that they remain engaged. So benign yes. neglect does not work in the virtual world. In the virtual world, uh, if I have a benignly neglectful boss, I'll just push the button that says, yeah, I'm logged in, and then I'll go do something else. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, it, it really does get complicated. Yeah, it does. Um, uh, you know, you want to have some sort of feedback. You want to, and, and, and what's interesting is that in, in terms of all our relationships, uh, with this shelter in place where we can't have person-to-person relationships, we've uh-huh. become much more, I mean, we've become entirely dependent on the virtual ones. And you see that communities are actually trying to use virtual to establish deeper connections than we may have had in our, pers- in our, in our flesh and blood connections. You can do it, act, and you can, you can do it. See, and this is where another place we need to draw the line. So, if you um, have somebody working virtually uh, and you're supervising them, what have you? Uh, yes, I understand the value of initiating conversations with them to make sure they're responding. I get that, uh, but if they're you're messaging them every single five minutes, uh, they're going to shut you down within the hour. That's where balance comes in. That's exactly. where common sense in. The problem with exactly. common sense is it's not common. Yeah. But, but, but this is where we come back to my point that we have to develop our ethical muscles. Uh-huh. And we start with the little things. And as we do, as we develop, as we cultivate this mindset, this attitude of always putting myself in the other person's place and trying to shift back and forth. You know, so I don't want to let it go too long because I don't want them to feel neglected. I don't want to overdo it because they're going to feel that, that I'm, I'm hovering over them. We're not always going to get it right, but we're going to stay closer to that balance point right. that over the long haul is going to make us more successful, is going to help our relationships remain healthy, and is going to uh, create that ethical culture that is aligned with success. Correct. And, I, and what I... I'm hearing from you that I actually have not heard before, at least quite that way, is where we start with the small things. You see, way too often in organizations, uh, companies begin with grandiose mission and vision statements, and then that doesn't get translated downward. Yeah, exactly. And I but, like, yeah, like, like, like that same company where I got micromanaged, in their mission statement, they celebrated the autonomy of their employees. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, you know, a mission statement's only as good as its impl- as its implementation. Um, I, I have a book called "Fix Your Broken Windows," and I use that model that uh, is from an old Atlantic article that if you if you fix the broken windows and you, you take out the boarded uh, you know, the boards and you haul away the derelict cars and you shoo the 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 riffraff off the corners and the neighborhood starts to look like there's law and order, crime is going to go down. Right. If you, if you deal with the little details of a business culture, you're going to create the appearance of a healthy culture, and it's actually going to become healthy and Correct. continue to get healthier. So, yeah, it is in the details very much. Not yeah. to the exclusion of the big picture, but as a way of allowing the big picture to, to, to be what you want it to be. If I, if I come to an office place... Uh, like, if I, let's say I was interviewing for a company, and, I, and, they, and as they walked me to and from where I was, the office where they were interviewing me, if I saw people who were focused, seemed overall 
you know, perky and upright, and I saw people here and there having what seemed like friendly conversations, I might think, oh, this is a cool place to work. If I walked through that same area and I saw people running, and when I glanced at people, I could see exhaustion and frustration, then I might say, oh, well, I don't know about this. And what I've also seen, because I've worked for companies that are big enough for this to happen, is you can have the same types of things within the same company, depending on what department you're in. Oh, sure. So you have that, you have that perspective new employee walkthrough, that, that person you're interviewing, what department are they walking by? The happy department or the sad department? That right there can impact your employee retention even before you hire them. Sure. I mean, I always put the example of Trader Joe's. Why does everybody love to shop at Trader Joe's? Because all the employees are happy. Yeah. Why are all the employees happy? Because they're treated well, because there's this company culture that makes it a great place to work. Uh -huh. What's so exciting about packing bags? I don't know. I don't work there, but <laughs> they're doing something I, right. Hey, <laughs> as I said, I worked in fast food for four and a half years, and I ran the gamut. My book is actually dedicated to uh, to two of the managers I had when I worked there. So in some ways, that really influenced me as a human being and also as an entrepreneur. That being said, uh, I know how I felt uh, putting that food in a bag at the pickup window when uh, one of the good bosses was there. And I, know, I knew how I felt when one of the bad bosses was there. You want to talk about night and day? <laughs> it, believe me, it matters a lot. And when we're talking virtual, it matters even more because that person's a step removed from you. They can just oh, downsize your screen. Yeah. You know, I was on another podcast and the host asked me, you know, this, all, this is all so logical. Why don't people get it? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, yeah, and I'm going to say again for the third time, just to make sure we all understand, start with the smaller things. If there's one takeaway I think our listeners can get from this is look at how you behave ethically when it comes to the small stuff, because it's those little things that happen that cumulatively create the environment and drive the decisions people are going to make. Yeah. Because if, if, you're, if, uh, if somebody you work with, your boss or a coworker or somebody who works for you um, sets you off uh, one day, uh, even inadvertently, you are you know, likely to be shut down for most of that day. However, if, you, uh, if one of those interactions lifts you up, then you might be at 200% for that whole day just based off of that. Why I, why I gave the example of uh, how I felt about putting French fries in the bag varied wildly depending on who was the supervisor at that time. Yeah, it, it comes down to, to you know, a smile, looking people in the eye, saying good morning, asking how you are and actually being interested. Yep. Knowing, knowing enough about what's going on in their personal lives that you can check in and say, you know, is everything okay? You know, as I heard your mom is not doing well. Little things. Yeah. That just so show concern and consideration and respect. And then giving people the opportunity to do their jobs and be successful. Exactly. All right. Yeah, I think, I think this is a good place uh, for us to uh, pause here because we are at the top of the hour. I'd love to have you on for another three hours. In fact, we're probably going <laughs> to invite you back maybe six months down the road because I think we have a lot more to discuss. Uh, what I'd like to do now is I know we have some of our listeners who uh, have been listening to some of our interesting boss from hell and the 
benign neglect stories, uh, maybe having a few laughs over it. Uh, at any rate, they're leaning in. They want to know more. They're ready to take this next step. So tell us, Jonathan, what is that next step? Well, you know, you can always find, I've got lots of um, videos, articles on my website, which is my name again, yonasongoldson.com. Yep. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a keynote speaker, not at the moment, with the speaking industry shut down. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, 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 we hope that's going to open up again soon. I've actually started doing some virtual presentations for Chambers of Commerce and, and uh -huh. uh, for, for professional associations. I'm also working on uh, on a new uh, training program. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I'd like to point out. You mentioned earlier. Uh, you made an allusion to the broken windows theory and yeah. uh, how a neighborhood functions based on how the neighborhood looks. And that's actually one of the, the titles of one of your books. One that I'm going to pick up myself. Fix your broken windows: a 12-step system for promoting ethical affluence. Uh, if they go to your website, which is yonasongoldson.com, and go to books, they can see that one uh, right there on that page. I, I'm going to pick that up for myself. So yeah, the, the whole idea of the broken windows is a 12-step program. Uh, I call it like a 12-step ethical recovery program because the truth is we're all addicts. We're addicted to the status quo. Exactly, exactly. And we need, we need to get back to good health and that's, that's gonna be a process. Yeah, certainly. So Jonas uh, and Goldson, I wanna thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor, uh, a fun time, hell of a fun time. And believe me in education. Well, it was my pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. You bet. And for everybody listening, I trust you've enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Again, visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, and be sure to connect with us via your favorite social network and or syndication network so that you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>